So today we're going to talk a little bit about context, because context is very, very important. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of you might be familiar with 20, uh, Jeremiah 29.11. Anybody here familiar with that verse? Okay. So a lot of us are familiar with 20, uh, Jeremiah 29.11, which, uh, where God says uh, to Israel, Israel is in Babylon, they are in exile. And what God says to them, he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And a lot of us love that verse. We do. We, do. we love the concept of hope, and, and we love the concept of God having a plan for us. But there's a context for that whole verse. There is. Because what, what, what Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, has been addressing with, uh, with the nation of Israel, they're, they're in exile. They're in a place called Babylon. Babylon, that's the bad guys, okay? That's the bad guys. And so they're living among all these bad guys. But what, what has happened is they have pro- false prophets who've been telling them, oh, you know what, you guys, you don't need to build homes. You don't need to put down roots because God is going to take you right back to Jerusalem. And God says, I'm sorry, it's really not going to be like that. In fact, you're getting ready to spend the next 70 years in Babylon. That's what he's telling them. So he tells them, uh, build houses, plant gardens, take wives for yourself, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage. And then what, what God says to these people is he says this. He says, seek the welfare of the city. Interesting. He's telling them to seek the, you know, we like that verse, verse 11. For I know the plans for I have, I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare. We like the idea that God has plans for good for us. But what God tells his people is this. He says, seek the welfare, the good of the city where I've sent you in exile. Right now, uh, this city that we're in, it's not our final home. Our final home is with God. But right now, while we are in exile, waiting to return to our home, what God says is this. He says, seek the welfare, seek the good of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on this behalf. He was telling them to pray for Babylon. Not for judgment. That's not what he was telling them to pray for. He told them, pray on behalf of the city. Pray for its welfare, uh, for in its welfare, pray, excuse me, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord on this behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. Now, folks, what that means for us is the more that we pray for the good of this community, and the more that we seek the good of this community, you know who benefits from that? We do. And so when we do things like our, our fall festival, what we're doing is we are seeking the welfare, the good of our community. When people do things like, uh, Belinda, I, I was thinking about our conversation on Friday about you're going to go to the prison and share your testimony. And in years past, you and Carmine, you've been involved, you've been invested in helping people in recovery. You're seeking the good of your community. And Carolyn, I think about you, and I think about Matt, and I think about what happened on your block, just like three or four houses down. 
couple years ago. Some guys go in. Uh, I don't know how many guys went in, but three people were shot. One was killed uh, in a hell of gunfire, bullets, casings everywhere. And you guys started a crime watch neighborhood. And the other night, just a, a few weeks ago, they had this barbecue in their backyard, and they were sitting around the fire together with their neighbors. And the God has brought something good out of something bad. See, that's what happens when we seek the welfare of our community. God does good things. And by the way, in, in, seeking, uh, in, in seeking the good of our community and praying for the welfare of our community, uh, we also, we experience good, that, that welfare, that good as well. Uh, I'm bringing this up for a couple of reasons. One, I do want to encourage you to be involved in, in our fall festival. But the other thing I'd like you to do is if you are currently plugged into a place where you are contributing to the, the good of our community, I'd like to know about that. Uh, and, when, and some of you, you may not be comfortable with telling me because you feel like, well, I'm showing off if I tell. No, that's not why I'm asking you to tell me. The reason I'm asking you is because in 2020, I want us to do a better job than we've ever done of seeking the welfare of our community. And I'd like to know what you are already doing so that I'm not asking you to do something entirely different, but instead I can come alongside you in what you're doing. And then others in our church, we can come alongside you with what you're doing as well, and we can invest ourselves in praying for you and with you. Is that okay? So I'd like you to let me know. You can, you can use the little comment card that's in our bulletin. You can, you can call me if you like. You can email me, text me, whatever. Uh, but, but I'd like to know how you're invested. And also I'd like to encourage you just to be praying and thinking about, is there something God is wanting you to do and how you'd like to get involved? But I'd like us to do that. Also tonight I'd just like to remind you that we're going to be gathering together and we're going to be praying uh, for the welfare of our community. So uh, that's that. Um, I want to ask you a question. I like to do this from time to time. And I know uh, some of us are more comfortable with it than others. But what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to kind of get together in groups uh, of three or four or five people, however you want to do this, and I want to ask you a question. When is it okay for a parent to be exasperated with their children? Okay? If you're a parent, my guess is you've probably had this experience at least once, but I'd like you to discuss among yourselves when is it okay for a parent to be exasperated with their children. Can you do that, please?
All right. So I'd like to hear from you. When is it okay for a parent to be exasperated with their children? By the way, uh, kids get exasperated with parents, too. I understand this, but I want to talk about it from a parent's perspective for a few minutes. So what did you come up with? When, when, they, when they lie. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, I heard someone over here, Michelle. When they don't listen. What did you say? Oh, just kidding. Actually, that's called being a husband. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> all right, wh- what else? When, when is it okay for uh, a parent to be exasperated? With Charles? Oh, okay, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make it less specific. But when when they are doing something when they are doing something that could hurt them. All right. What else? Ah, okay. Okay. I'm just going to say 35 dozen cookies, and we'll know. All right. What else? When's it okay for Dolly? Okay. So making bad decisions. All right. All right, so let me just pause right there. Let me ask you to, to discuss among yourselves uh, a, another question, okay? How should a parent deal with a child who's involved in destructive behavior? Behavior that is either harmful for themselves or harmful for others. And this is going to change based upon the age of the kids. So, but I still want you to take a few minutes, and I want you to kind of wrestle with that one. So... Uh, Yeah, all ages, all ages. So how should a parent deal with a child who's involved in destructive behavior? All right, so I know this is kind of a tricky question because we're, we're dealing with, with a lot of different parents who find your kids at different ages and stuff. Uh, some of us don't have kids yet. Uh, but but uh, So I want to ask you the question, uh, how, should a parent, uh, how should a parent deal with a child who's involved in destructive behavior? What are some of the things you came up with? Michelle? 
Oh, okay. So, especially with younger children, take things away, but not just younger children. So, um, I think that, um, I think sometimes, I think sometimes the things that we give children, whether they're small or even as they get older, uh, sometimes if we're not careful, the very things that we are giving them to show our love may not always be good for them and how they live their lives. So we have to think about that. So I saw another hand back here. Okay. Prayer and patience. Okay. Okay. So prayer and patience. Talk to them. Okay. Kathy, I saw your hand back here. Okay, so be aware, okay? Then I heard a voice over here somewhere. Okay, lead by example. That is, you know, that is fantastic. Um, I think that, I think sometimes we tell our kids what they should do or what they shouldn't do. For example, a moment ago we talked about uh, we're exasperated with, their, with our kids when they lie. However, do they ever see you lie? Because they see your lie, they're just simply following the example. They're just following the example. Judy? Okay. Okay. So be consistent. All right. Be consistent and then boundaries. All right. People. Sorry? Counseling. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that some of us have a really hard time watching our children suffer. Some of us have a really hard time letting our children suffer. We have a really, really hard time with this. And I'm just going to tell you that when you remove suffering from the life of your child, you do not do them a favor. You teach them that they can live their lives any way they want to without consequences. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is let your children feel the pain, uh, the consequences uh, of their actions. And this is hard, but it's healthy. We, we live in a cause and effect world. And if you teach your kids that they don't live in a cause and effect world, that they are exempt, then they don't learn from their experience. I'm just going to leave it right there for a few minutes. There's a reason why I wanted to do this. I'm going to go, I, I talked to you about uh, the importance of context. Context is hugely important. Some of us in this room have had some really toxic experiences. Okay? When I say some of us, I'm talking about every one of us, all right? Just in case you were wondering. Some of us have had some very toxic experiences. Some of us have had some very toxic experiences in our homes. Some of us have had very, very toxic experiences in our churches. This is the problem that you have and I have. We read the Bible, and we don't even know we're doing it. We use the experiences of our past as a filter. We do this, and we don't even know we're doing it. And we use it as a way, not knowing that we're doing it, 
to help us discern and understand the Bible. Do you understand why this is dangerous? Because when you don't know your own toxicity, when you don't know how your own experiences shape the way you read and understand situations. Have you ever listened to someone in a conversation and they said something that felt really, really hurtful? But then later you found out the context and you realized it wasn't as hurtful as, as, what, they, as what they were saying? You ever done that? Now, sometimes we can do the exact same thing with the Bible. The reason I wanted to do this is because we're going to read a text of Scripture. And as we read the Scripture, this is how I want you to hear it. I want you to hear this and think about this. And I want you to think about the Apostle Paul as being like a parent who dearly, dearly, dearly loves the Corinthian church. And because he loves them, he's exasperated. Because he sees, uh, he sees destructive behavior and he sees the implications that that destructive behavior has in the life of the person who's doing it, but also the ripple effect that it's having in many, many other people's lives as well. And if we don't understand that context, it's easy to read Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and just assume that he's angry. Or, or let's, let's make this even a little bit more complicated. Okay? One of the worst times for a pastor to preach is when he feels tired and cranky. I'm tired and cranky today. I'm getting ready to talk about a text that could sound very tired and cranky. Okay? I had a little ER room visit last night. They always happen on Saturdays. So I don't know why. Okay? And, and I'll talk about it more in a moment. But, but what I don't want you to hear is my tired and cranky voice. What I want you to hear is the, the love that a pastor or a parent might have for their children. A pastor might have for his church. First Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> How should we as a church respond to people, deal with people who are involved in destructive behavior that's destructive for themselves, the church, and our testimony for Christ in our community? First Corinthians 5 says this. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Now what Paul is saying is that, hey, this is common knowledge. I know about this. A lot of other people know about this. In fact, I live a long way from Corinth, and I've heard about it. And he says to the Corinthian church, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Now, do you understand the significance of that phrase? He is saying, you're a church, and you are more pagan than the pagans. Uh, real quick, just a quick reminder. It, it, there was, among the Greeks, there was a word to Corinthianize. The city of Corinth was a city that was known for its, its uh, sexual morality. And so they coined a word to Corinthianize, meaning to be involved in the kind of immorality that only, uh, uh, that only the Corinthians would do. And in this case, the church in Corinth is involved in a kind of... Uh, sexual morality that not even the Corinthians do. Not even the pagans do. He says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. 
There is in your church a man who, in a very, very flagrant, blatant way, is involved in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And you are proud. You are proud. You're proud of being an open and gracious and accepting church. You're proud. You're proud of being an open and gracious and accepting church. By the way, there can be no grace if there is no truth. And there can be no truth if there is no grace. When Jesus comes to us, he comes to us not with truth and truth only. And he doesn't come to us with grace and grace only. But he comes with grace and truth. This church was all about grace, and they were proud of it. So proud of it that they were tolerating among themselves a kind of sexual immorality that the rest of the community found appalling. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Instead of of being proud, shouldn't you be grieving? Grieving as if for a lost loved one who died? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's doing this. He's already passed judgment. You know, it's funny. A lot of people's favorite verse is, Thou shalt not judge. You know who said that? Jesus did. But Jesus also said this, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. There's a difference in being judgmental and and trying to think that you you can figure out all of a person's uh, motives, which you really can't. There's a difference in looking down at another person uh, because of their conduct, and there's a a completely uh, different, that's different from using good judgment. So, for example, good, good judgment looks like this. Good judgment looks like this. Dad's talking with daughter. Daughter is going to high school prom. Daughter is wearing high-heeled shoes that hurt her feet. Dad suggests maybe you should wear Converse tennis shoes. Daughter says, no, I'll just take my shoes off and dance barefoot. Daughter goes into mosh pit barefoot dancing with a huge mob of high school teenagers. Daughter's foot gets stomped on. Dad picks up daughter, takes her to the ER. Sure enough, it's broken. The toe's broken. All right? That, that, uh, where's that in the text? What verse are we on? Okay, there's a difference between being judgmental and having good judgment. You follow what I'm saying? Just because you have good judgment doesn't make you judgmental. Just because you give a person a boundary and say, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to engage in that kind of behavior with you. That's using good judgment. It's not being judgmental. It's just using good judgment. Someone wants you to do something that's wrong? No, I'm not going to do that. You're using good judgment. Uh, there are times where we have to use good judgment, and that's what Paul's talking about. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Sounds really tough, doesn't it? 
Remember, everything has context. If you read these words knowing your context but not knowing Paul's context, you make it say something that it may not be saying. So I want you to, I want us to think. Hand this man over for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul says, you're boasting, you're boasting about being a gracious church that is so accepting of things that are unacceptable. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Let me ask you a question. If I make you a big plate of brownies and give them to you, would you appreciate that and maybe enjoy a brownie or two? If just before you eat it, I say, oh, by the way, there's a little bit of dog poop in these brownies. <laughs> Are you still okay with eating the brownies? You say, well, how much dog poop? Because if it's only a little bit, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> if it's a whole lot, was it, was it dried up or was it fresh? Jim loves that. <laughs> I mean, do you, you get the point here? Okay, so your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, a little poop in your brownies makes the whole batch poopy? Get rid of the old yeast, the poop, so that you may be uh, a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Let us keep the festival, Passover. Let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Real quick, some of this is a little bit... A lot of people believe that, this, that when Paul was writing this, Passover was approaching. And, and in Passover, what they would do is, is they would clean out their houses, they would get rid of all leaven that was in the house before they celebrated and it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they would eat unleavened bread over the, the time of that feast, and then it, they finished up with, uh, with Passover, taking the Passover lamb, the lamb uh, that was sacrificed, commemorating when God uh, passed over Israel during the time of the Exodus and, and, and spared their children from destruction and death. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, look, your Passover lamb, Jesus, has already come. And by the way, you should already be done with all that leaven. You should have already gotten rid of this. And that's what he's talking about here. Get rid of that stuff that is really destructive. That's destructive. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. I wrote you in my letter. This is not Paul. It is 1 Corinthians but it's not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. After, second, or after 1 Corinthians, well, whatever. Okay, he actually wrote four letters. We have number 2 and number 4. Number 2 and number 4. Number, first and 2 Corinthians are actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians. So there, I made everybody confused. That's what I do. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people I didn't mean people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, a so-called Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Why does he say don't eat? 
probably a reference here, and as you read through 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, it's going to talk about, uh, it's going to be talking about uh, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So the eating here is probably the Lord's Supper, and with that, what was often called the love feast that went with it. Okay? Our version of a potluck. And he's saying, do not even eat with such people. What business is, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, here's the thing. Depending upon what your church background is, you can bring a lot of toxicity to this text. Okay? And that's the reason I talked to you about context on the front end. And that's the reason what I want you to see here is that Paul, as a pastor, as an apostle, has a father's heart for his people. It's kind of like a parent who's concerned about the destructive behavior of their children. Okay? Does does that make sense? I'm going to cut out a bunch of stuff I was going to do. And I want to to move to a couple things here. I want to move to a couple things here if I can. Um, bottom line, bottom line, what Paul wanted is he wanted the Corinthians to be grieved over their sin and not proud of it. Does that make sense? He wanted them to be grieved by their sin and he wanted not to be proud of it. And secondly, secondly, he wanted the Corinthians to remove the sinning person from the church. He wanted them... He says here, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who's present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, so that, Whenever you see so that, what's coming next is hugely important. So that his spirit may be saved. What is it that Paul is concerned about here? He is concerned about this person's salvation. That's what he's concerned about. He's concerned about this salvation, this person's salvation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to give you an illustration. Uh, that hopefully will help make this clear. And, and uh, it's kind of like this. As followers of Jesus, following Jesus, you have, in some measure, an umbrella of protection. Now, this doesn't mean that you're protected from every bad thing that can happen to you. Job was a godly man. And God allowed Satan to touch him. But with being a follower of Jesus, in some measure, there is an umbrella of protection for you and me that comes with that. As a follower of Jesus who is connected in a good church, with that there comes an umbrella of protection. Earlier today, uh, Joe and I were talking about the importance of relationships and being connected with other people. And, And we were talking about that sometimes we as guys, we can play... Uh, with our cards pretty close to the vest. We're very, very careful to talk about what's going on in our lives. We're really, really good at stiff-arming people from getting too close to us. And a lot of times we do this because of insecurity. No man li- likes admitting that he's insecure. 
No man likes admitting that he's weak. No man likes admitting that he needs other people. We want to be like Rambo in First Blood, where I can take on the entire Washington militia all by myself and kill them all dead if I want to, all right? But sometimes we need other people. And sometimes we need to lay out our cards and say, this is what's going on in my life. Can you help me? Are are you with me here? And when I have people in my life I can do that with, whether it's our elders, whether it's with Matt, whether it's with friends of mine who are pastors of other churches, our close friends, this last week I had lunch with a really, really good friend of mine I've known for 25 years, uh, Bill Rollinson. And with Bill, I feel like I can kind of lay things out for him, and I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to worry. I can kind of take the filter off and be really honest. And, uh, and, and, and the more we have that with other people, the more protection we have in our lives. But when we, through sin, willful disobedience, turn away from Jesus, we remove, in some measure, from ourselves this umbrella of protection. And when we remove ourselves from the fellowship of the church, from accountability, because there's supposed to be accountability in the church, and when we remove ourselves from encouragement, because there's supposed to be encouragement in the church, when we remove ourselves from this, we're a little bit like the zebra. Remember the zebra? Yeah. You remember the zebra. You saw it on PBS. The zebra with the herd, with the lions. And with the herd, the zebra is relatively safe. But the zebra who separates himself from the the herd, what happens to him? He's got a big L on his head, which does not mean loser. It means lunch for a lion. Okay? That's what it means, lunch for a lion. And what Paul is saying is that when a person is sinning in this way, this kind of sin is like gangrene in the body of Christ. And, you know, several years ago, I broke my arm. Y'all know the story. I go to the doctor. The doctor sees I have a broken arm, and he says, well, we need to amputate. You know the story? We need to amputate. I'm like, well, well can't you just put, like, a metal plate in there and put the bones back together and I'd be Okay. Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, we can do that too. See, if you break your arm, the first thing you do is you don't amputate it. But there comes a point in time, if gangrene sets in, where you've got to lose the limb. And when people are involved in this kind of destructive behavior, sometimes, sometimes, they have to be removed from the body of Christ for the sake of the church. Now, some of you may think that's incredibly unfair. That's unhealthy. That's being judgmental. That's unholy. That's unhealthy. That's just... Where's the grace in that? Where's the grace in that? Some of you may feel that way. So let's talk real life. I have a buddy of mine. We had lunch together a few days ago. I was in Manteca. I was there visiting one of the largest churches in Manteca. It's called Calvary Community Church. Really, really good church, long history. I was there with a group of other pastors, all of us on the the board for next-gen churches. And I, I was there, and I was talking with Tim, and I know Tim's story. Tim Pastor is one of our churches over in the North Bay. Really, really good pastor of a really, really good church. Tim's story started in Manteca. Tim grew up in that church, in Calvary Community Church in Manteca. He grew up in that church. His uh, parents went to that church. His grandparents went to that church. His father ended up being one of the associate pastors of that church, one of the largest churches in the Central Valley at that time. 
what happened with Tim and with his family is his father, pastor in the church, decided to leave his wife for a woman he was having an affair with. Devastating for Tim's mom. Devastating for Tim and his brother and sister. Absolutely devastating. What does the church do? Well, you can't keep a guy on staff as a pastor who's living in an an openly immoral relationship with another woman. You just can't. Now, folks, church discipline is never easy. It is always painful. It is hugely painful. But there's a purpose in the pain. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a purpose in the pain because in the pain there can be repentance. Uh, In this case, Tim's dad chose not to repent. Um, and they had to live through that season. It was really, really hard for them. Through the years, I've had different friends of mine who've had to leave the ministry for different reasons. A couple of guys who had to leave, one uh, because of multiple affairs. Uh, Another one who had to leave the ministry, not because of affairs, but because of unhealthy relationships with with women in his church. I've seen other other people who've gone through similar experiences. Perry Noble is pretty open talking about his experience. He used to pastor one of the largest churches in America, the second fastest growing church in America, church of 32,000 people on 11 campuses. Uh, Noble began to struggle more and more with his drinking. He began to look for his solace. These are his words, not mine. He began to look for his solace in alcohol instead of in Jesus and his relationships with other people. And because of the impact it had in his life, in his family, and the people he worked with, he had to step down. Another guy, um, Mark Driscoll. Driscoll is actually, he's a, you know, he's in a pretty good exegete of the scriptures. I would say he's an exceptional exegete of the scriptures. A pretty powerful communicator. Uh, Driscoll had a track record of what some people would call misogyny being very abusive, condescending, and mean towards women in his church. Uh, He had a track record of being abusive with other staff and people in the church. And there were a few other things that were going on. Driscoll had to step down. Uh, More recently, um, Bill Hybels up in Willow Creek Community Church uh, came came to be known that uh, he was involved in uh, not affairs, but just unhealthy relationships with women, had to step down. Now, folks, none of this is easy. Nobody wants to go through church discipline. Of all people, the pastor doesn't want to have to do it. But there are times, there are times where you have to address it to affect repentance in the life of the person. These are always painful situations. So let's talk real quick. How do we approach matters like this at SBC? This is where I've got to go fast. Number one, when we have to address matters like this, we always want to examine ourselves first. We do. Why do we want to examine ourselves first? Because sometimes I can pay attention to another person's unhealthiness while ignoring my own unhealthiness that may be even worse. You understand what I'm saying? This is why Jesus says, 
you know, he, he, what Jesus says, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take care of the plank. Take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That we have to always do this inventory of our own hearts, our own lives. Am I coming with a spirit of superiority? Am I coming with a spirit of pride? Am I coming with a spirit of condemnation? I've got to, you know, it's real easy, real easy to focus on another person's stuff and miss our own. And, and I would say, if you're really bothered by something that someone else is doing, what you should do is you should set aside time to quit thinking about that person and start examining your own life. In fact, I would pray the, the words of the psalmist, Search me, O God. Search me. Search me, O God, because God's not going to miss anything. Search me. Know my heart. See if there be... Um, any unhealthy way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We've got to search ourselves first. Number two, uh, we always aim for restoration. The Bible says, brothers, sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Real interesting here. The word restore, I've told you this before, means to set the bone. Literally, that's what it means. Last night, I watched the doctor, I got it on video, uh, of the doctor setting the bone in, in Faith's toe after it had been broken. When he did that, he wasn't trying to be mean, he was trying to help her. The only thing is, 2,000 years ago, they didn't numb it up first. They just said it. Uh, and, and, uh, but what we need to do is we're always aiming to restore. Sometimes the process of restoration is very painful. But our aim is not humiliation. Our aim is restoration. Are you with me? Our aim is not aggravation to aggravate this person. Our aim is restoration to restore this person. Um, number three, we, we follow the, the three-step process of Jesus. Uh, what am I talking about here in Matthew chapter 18? Uh, Jesus says, hey, if your brother sins, go to him just between you and him. And if he repents, you've won your brother. That's the first step, meaning that what we don't do is next Sunday have an open mic day where everybody airs out their problems with everybody else, okay? But you go to the person just between the two of you, you and that person alone. By the way, the best time to approach that person is probably not before they're getting ready to, I don't know, they're getting ready to do something that's, you know, I, anybody here, um, well, I'm not going to get into that. But just go to the person at a time that's good for them and not good for you, Okay? You want to pay attention to not just what's easy and convenient for yourself. Because if you're doing that, you're just being selfish. But going to the person at a time that's really good for them. And, 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 and just between the two of you, if they listen, you've won your brother. Number two, if, if, if they don't listen to you, go with one or two other people so everything can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If not, tell it to the church. Okay? Uh, so we follow a process like that. Okay? Uh, number four, if something is done publicly, we address it publicly. If it's done privately, we address it pi privately. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what was being done by this man was very, very 
public. People knew he was having sex. I said that word, yes, sex, in church. People knew he was having sex with his stepmom. It was very open, very blatant, very flagrant. When things happen like that, you have to deal with it publicly. Why? Because everybody knows, and it's got to be addressed. Um, You know, to be honest with you, most cases about, uh, like, church discipline that I've seen and watched, typically it's usually with a staff member of the church who has a very, very public, um, what they've done is very, very public, or the way they're dealing with it is having a huge ripple effect with many, many people. And there's no getting around it. You just have to deal with it publicly. So uh, what we do is if something's done publicly, we address it publicly. Sometimes that public may be a small group, five or six people. Then that's the five or six people. That's the public we deal with it in. Sometimes the public is three or four people. We deal with it with three or four. Sometimes it's more. We deal with it with more. But if it's public, we deal with it publicly. If it's private, we deal with it privately. Finally, number number five, uh, if it has legal implications or requirements, we turn it over to the proper authorities. A couple of friends of mine, both their churches uh, were embezzled, uh, large sums of money. Uh, when they addressed it, they had to involve the proper legal authorities. By the way, you know, in, in the world today, it's not been in the news quite as much, but we've seen so many times where a child has been sexually abused in a church, and the church tried to keep it private and cover it up so as to not uh, ruin the reputation of the church. In doing that, children were being molested. We've seen this. We've read the newspaper headlines. When something happens of that nature, by the way, just so you know, I'm a mandated reporter. I'm a mandated reporter. If you tell me you're going to do harm to another person, guess what? I call the police. That's what I do. I've had to do it two times. All right? If you tell me you're going to harm another person, if you tell me you're going to harm yourself, I'm a mandated reporter. Uh, Just recently, I just learned this from a friend of mine who's a therapist. If if, If a person receives child pornography, if a person receives child pornography, not that they were seeking, it was simply sent to them, that therapist has to give that information to the police. You know why? Not because they're coming after you for receiving it. You're the victim. Ultimately, the children are the victim. But you're being victimized as well. But they have to tell the police, and the reason they have to tell the police is because the police are going to go after whoever sent that to you. So as a mandated reporter, there are certain things that I have to report. If something... uh, if, if whatever we're dealing with has legal implications or requirements, we turn it over to the proper authorities. All right, this has gone longer than it should. So let's just kind of, let, let's end this. When dealing with matters of flagrant, blatant sin in the church, we must not be too lenient, uh, as the Corinthians were, nor too severe, as churches sometimes are. Uh, when we address others in their sin, we must examine our own hearts first, and we have to approach people firmly. It has to be firm, but humbly. Okay? We cannot err. Uh, we, we, we don't want to... 
we, we don't want to be all about truth and not about grace. And we don't want to be all about grace and not about truth. Because grace without truth isn't really grace. And truth without grace isn't really truth. But we've got to approach people with truth and grace. Uh, we have to aim for restoration of the sinning person while protecting the integrity of the church and our witness in the community. And when people repent, by the way, you want to know the good story, or you want to know the good news of this story in First Corinthians chapter 5? You know what eventually happened? You know what happened to this man? Because we know. We know what happened to this man. As you read through First Corinthians into Second Corinthians, guess what happens to this man? He repents. He's brokenhearted. He repents of his sin. And you know what Paul says? Paul says, receive him with open arms. See, the aim is always for restoration. The aim is always for restoration while also protecting the integrity of the church. Let's pray. God, today, uh, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that in Jesus we have truth and grace, not grace without truth and not truth without grace. God, all of us, we have different, different backgrounds. We, we come, we bring uh, a different context to this text. And sometimes, God, with that, there can be a measure of confusion. And what we want to learn how to do, God, is we want to learn how to address things like this in a way that's healthy, in a way that's holy for everybody involved. And that's what we want to learn how to do. And I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.